Ophthalmologist Dr. Strauss has seen firsthand how the metaverse is helping surgeons practice the procedures to treat cataracts. Cataracts are the primary cause of avoidable blindness. He works with a virtual reality training platform developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International to help surgeons develop the muscle memory they need. The result? More confident, capable surgeons. And even more importantly, patients who can see. Explore more stories like Dr. Strauss's at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Is America's primary system working? Is the Electoral College still the best process for electing a president? Could a third-party candidate ever be successful? In a new season of You Might Be Right, former Tennessee governors Bill Haslam and Phil Bredesen gather the country's top experts to explore these issues and more as we approach the 2024 presidential election. Listen to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee, available now wherever you get your podcasts. Episode 132 of The Bowery Boys. Thomas Edison turns on the lights. Hey, it's the Bowery Boys. Hey. Hello there. Welcome to the Bowery Boys. This is Greg Young. And this is Tom Myers. And we have a topic with which we, we literally could not even bring you this podcast without this topic. Now, a year ago, if some of our loyal listeners may remember that we did a show on Times Square, and then a couple months after that, we did a show on New York and the birth of the movies. So this is actually a prequel to both of those shows. It's a history of lighting up New York City from candles to gaslight, and finally, of course, to the birth of electricity. I think that most Americans know that Thomas Edison played a pretty important role in the development of the light bulb. I wasn't aware of what an integral role New York City played in that entire story as well. I didn't either. New York was almost like a proto-laboratory. Even when he moved his laboratory to New York, he used the streets of New York uh, to try out some of these brand new inventions, inventions that would revolutionize the entire world. This is not just about electricity, not just about lighting. This is really about how New York became the city that never sleeps. So join us as we shine some light on Thomas Edison and the lighting of New York. back to the very beginnings of New York history, I believe, too. But, you know, before we get to these more sophisticated ways, of course, people, you know, they lit themselves with fire. Original <laughs> Lenape Indians, you know, actually, right. like, can't, we're not going that far. No, no. Uh, we're OK. We're I assume we're going to let's speed it up. Maybe a <laughs> little bit. Not that there is anything wrong with campfire. Let's think about candles and lanterns, shall we? In 1697, New York was a British colony. Mm -hmm. The magistrates passed a law making it mandatory for the homeowners to have a light, quote, hung out on a pole from an open window at night, or as they said in the, quote, dark time of the moon. So everyone was personally responsible for lighting their own property and the streets that were surrounding it. Well, this is what they tried. It wasn't very popular. People sort of revolted (laughs) because, of course, I mean... 
that was a big thing to ask of people to put out this light every single night. That would, that's a lot of work. Right. So they settled on a new plan where every seventh house needed to put out a, quote, lantern and candle. And, and only during the winter. So every seventh house had a lantern. The, the six other houses paid for the upkeep. So right. yeah, that All right. Well, that's a little bit better. But still, you have some dark patches here if you're walking alone at right. night. It isn't really brilliant. Um, and you can imagine that people were complaining about it. But of course, if we rewind to the 17th century or the, really the beginning of the 18th century, this was part of living in a small colony. People were also asked to maintain the road in front of their house. They had to gravel and supply the, quote, peebles that went in the streets. So it wasn't out of the ordinary to ask people to hang something out to illuminate the street. And residents were also being asked to take turns filling the role of the night watchman or to contribute to hiring somebody to do the job for them. And these guys were notoriously ineffective. I mean, they were just sort of, you know, they'd fall asleep, they'd be drunk, whatever. Now, in 1762, so about 60 years after this ordinance passed, the city, still under the British rule, attempted to combat the crime by hiring not only full-time night staff, but also the first municipal lamps. And these were burning whale oil, and they were maintained by a group of professional lamplighters who would go around and, and keep them lit, and turn them on at a certain time, turn them off at a certain time. And this would be a job that would last for well over a century, especially with the addition of gas lanterns that would come a little later. Exactly. Now, these first lamps that burned the whale oil were not terribly effective because they were, they were so dim. They did a poor job of lighting up the streets, and they were smoky. But at the same time, Greg, they were so romantic. I mean, you can imagine these city streets. There's nothing like the aroma of, of burning whale oil. Mm. But there was something on its way. Gas was coming. Real gas lamps were coming. And London, in fact, had become the first city to power their street lamps by gas. And Baltimore became the first American city to do the same. Yes, it was in 1816 that the Baltimore Museum of Rembrandt and Rubens Peel they were an influential artistic family. Uh, Rubens actually had his own museum in New York. That was where gas lanterns were first introduced. Now, this was coal gas, not natural gas. So we're not talking about fracking here. Fracking, no. We're talking about no. We're talking about the like the plumbing of the earth to get coal, and that would be burned, and the gas would be transmitted through pipes to these lamp installations that would be whether on a street or any home and each lamp required a manually turning of each valve so there wouldn't be like a light switch each lamp right. worked of its own accord the common council there in 1816 authorized a very small little gas system that was right next to city hall but it took a few years to really catch a spark here until investors eventually formed the new york gas light company in 1822 for some reason, but I'm not quite, but I couldn't quite understand. The first initial investors were all Quakers. Hmm. The uh, original offices were at Elizabeth and Hester, which is at the heart of Chinatown, uh, and in a former Quaker church was the very first gas offices. Uh, and their very first president, Samuel Leggett, was also a Quaker. People were understandably skittish about having gas pumped into their homes and then lit aflame. Well, of course. I mean, what if there was a leak? What if too much gas was coming through and it caught everything on fire? And, you know, this is like the first part of the 19th century. There's a, a lot of uncertainty. 
with this kind of technology. So Leggett himself became the first person to have a gaslit home at 7 Cherry Street. The first night that he lit this up, it drew a huge crowd from all over the city. Most people expected the house to burst into flames. So it was a little bit, there was some rubbernecking. There was some, yes, expecting to see a house explode. In fact, it didn't happen. People looked in the windows and they were delighted and dazzled. And soon New York was supplying gas to thousands of homes throughout the city. By 1830, there would be 26 miles of gas pipes buried under the major streets in New York. I mean, this is very significant because this kind of project has never really been done in the city with the exception of water and sewage. This, of course, had a profound revolutionary effect. Factories were able to stay open and increase productivity here in New York. Because their workers could actually see. You could actually see and you could actually work work them later, work them to the bone. Indoors, domestic life, of course, then was not dictated by the sun. New York's social sphere blossomed almost overnight because now they didn't just have little candles here or there. They could have whole rooms lit up with this new sort of revolutionary light. As for outdoor light, the richest streets around Broadway were the ones that got gaslight first. The poor neighborhoods, it took, in some places, decades to get these gas pipes installed and then to get gas light. Even though this was considered a public utility and the, the city was supposed to provide this? Yes, but I mean, at the end of the day, it's still where the money is at, especially in a city that was still growing, like New York. But also, part of it was that a lot of the like richer, fancier places, like the hotels, they actually fitted their own rooms. Like They spent the money to fit pipes into their own walls and so they can have gas lights in the individual rooms. Of course, like if you're a traveler from another place and you come to New York and you stay in one of these rooms, you don't know, you've never, you don't know how to use this. So there would be fires all the time in these hotels and a lot of people would have to be trained and they would have to have people who go around to each individual room just to double check. Now, as you can imagine, imagine yourself in this fantasy hotel room in the 1860s or so with a gas lamp. Obviously, there's some flaws that gas has. One of them, naturally, is it smells. It could explode under certain circumstances. That would certainly be a flaw in my book, yes. Um, You couldn't sleep with the windows closed if you had gas lamps because sometimes gas would escape and being in a trapped room, you would be asphyxiated. So that, right. yes, a, a flaw. another flaw. Yeah. Yet another. And, of, and actually, the light was quite dim. A lot of people preferred candlelight. And of course, it was also inconvenient to just have that many. If you had a huge house, it would take you all night just to light the lights and then to like unlight them at the end of the mm. evening. So some turned to electricity as perhaps a solution as something better than gas. Electricity had been discovered centuries earlier. Benjamin Franklin, of course, his famous experiments, which included the invention of a lightning rod. One of the crudest forms of electric light actually came to New York around the late 1870s. And this kind of light was called the arc light, A-R-C, a arc light. Essentially, imagine a space heater, a gigantic space heater, you know, those Mm. with like a glowing rod, carbon rods that were coated with copper. And glowing in literally hundreds of degrees. They were so, they were super hot. Experiments with this form of lighting during the 19th century were rather successful. So an individual businesses in New York would get these little arc lights. Like, for instance, in 1878, the Park Avenue Hotel delighted all when all of a sudden they had arc lights in their little courtyard in the back. 
The post office at City Hall would also have these, this gigantic arc light. And this is at the end of the 1870s. The 1870s, yes. It would be this intense, blinding light. Due to the technology here, and I'm not going to get into the technology because I, I'm not a... Why not? <laughs> Unfortunately, that's not my wheelhouse. The light would sometimes would change brightness and sometimes it would even change color because there was a little inconsistency to it. But these instances at the end of the 1870s were being used indoors or in private spaces. These were just, I should stress this, outdoors because these, they were huge and they were hot. Okay, uh-huh. so... They were really only suited. There may have been instances of inside, but most, I believe, were outside features. But the city had not put these up. No. However, the innovator of this particular kind of light was a man named Charles Brush. He would actually be commissioned to install these kinds of outdoor arc lights for the city. Um, In 1880, he did get permission to light, of course, the Tonya Streets in New York, which, of course, would be Broadway from Union Square, 14th Street, all the way up to 26th. So basically from Union Square all the way up literally to the front door of Delmonico's restaurant. Oh, Tony. (laughs) I love this. It actually debuted on December 20th of 1880. So just imagine, and this is Ladies Mile. Now, this is where everyone went shopping. It's a busy holiday season here in 1880s. Everyone is out doing their Christmas shopping. It's around five o'clock, and so the sun is setting. That's uh, like it has every night, right? All of a sudden, at five twenty-seven, overhead there was this like strange sound, sort of a sizzling, and it was almost like the sun had come out. These gigantic lights on enormous poles—they were twice the size of street lamps. Throughout the evening, they would even get stronger. The light would even get stronger. The New York Times said, quote, the artistic effects of strong contrasts in light and shade were numerous. On the grouped burners in Madison Square, with their rows of gas lights below and that single electric flame above, this contrast was particularly impressive. Viewed from afar, it suggested a circlet of golden gems surmounted by a dazzling white diamond. So this had... Sounds kind of trippy. <laughs> yeah, it kind of was. As Brush's fame swept through the world, he had installed arc lights all over the place. And the next year, in 1881, he would outdo himself here at Union Square and at Madison Square with so-called sun towers. So these other lights were just double the size of street lamps. These would actually be 160 feet high. They would, they would stand so high and they would cast light for blocks. And we create these marvelous, strange and mysterious shadows. 160 feet. It's like a 16-story building. It's, they were enormous. Yeah, and they cast light. You could see the light for miles. Now, gas companies were momentarily frightened by this, but they were ultimately not concerned because, as I said, it was mostly for outdoor lighting. Gas companies by this time were making most of their money on indoor lighting. Mm-hmm. Arc lights were also very dangerous to handle. This, this light in uh, Union Square, for instance, two people were killed in the installation of the light. Oh. So this was not the direction that light was going to go. There needed to be new innovations. While all this arc light business was going on, someone else was working on electricity. And that someone else was Thomas Edison. And we'll shine a light on Edison's story right after this. On April 19, 1995, a federal building in Oklahoma City was destroyed in a domestic terrorist attack. 
Just days after the bombing, America discovered the perpetrator was right-wing extremist Timothy McVeigh, whose mindset and values are still very present today. It's an American tragedy, but one I still remember very vividly. But there is so much more to the story than what you might remember. Take a deeper look into this moment of history with the podcast Homegrown OKC, hosted by Jeffrey Tubin and based on his book. The Homegrown OKC podcast is about better understanding the political environment in our country today. In particular, I found fascinating all the original archival footage used in the show, sounds which brought me back to that time, but with a richer understanding of events. These episodes were thrilling to listen to. That's Homegrown OKC. To listen, search for Homegrown OKC in your podcast app. That's Homegrown OKC. And that someone else, of course, was Thomas Alva Edison, who had seen this opening because at this point he was already an established inventor. Mm -hmm. And he had dedicated himself to making and developing and inventing products that would make money. And he saw a big opportunity here. The arc light wasn't going to work inside somebody's house. I mean, that's a hideous thought. And women were complaining that anyway, they looked all bleached out. (laughs) They looked like ghosts. It's not a flattering light. No. Right. And the oil lamps were no longer really in fashion because they gave you headaches from their fumes and they were sooty and left stains on the ceiling and all that. But rewinding two years to 1878, two years before these arc lights were turned on, shocking everybody, he made a splash in the papers when he announced that he would soon develop a solution for household lighting that was softer than the arc lights being used elsewhere, but more powerful than gas lighting. Mm-hmm. He claimed that his new invention would be a small incandescent light that was perfect for home use. All the big names got excited. They wanted to get on board and help him finance his new company, which was called the Edison Electric Light Company. These backers uh, included names of very powerful families and financiers like the Vanderbilts, J.C. Penney. (laughs) The great J.C. Penney. The great great J.C. Penney. No, J.P. Morgan. Morgan, in fact, was so excited by this whole plan that he set sail for Europe in order to pitch the plan to Europeans. So Morgan, one of the great financiers, one of the wealthiest men, were signed on at the outset. Yeah, the only problem, Greg, was that Edison hadn't yet invented the light bulb. (laughs) He just knew it was going to happen. He knew that they they had to find the right ingredients, right? But he knew how to work. Right. Right. All right. Wait, before you get started into the filament. Of the electric light here. Tell us a little bit about Edison himself. I'll situate us. Oh, right. We're situating in the middle of the podcast here. I like it. Yes. Well, Thomas Edison was born in Milan, Ohio, not Milan, Ohio. I think Milan takes its name from Milan. (laughs) And as a fellow Ohioan, Tom, you know how to pronounce it, right? Yes. Well, Milan, in fact, Greg, Mm. uh, is only about 10 miles away from my hometown. Wow. Over the Thanksgiving holiday, I visited his birthplace. That is fantastic. Like yourself, he came to New York from Ohio. But unlike myself, he was born in February of 1847. Now, Milan at the time, it's a small town now. It was a bustling town then. In fact, this, the world's second largest wheat exporter at the time. And let's just say it was, it was a big moment in Milan's history. Sure. And little Edison, Tom, he was an 
odd child, actually. He didn't say a word until he was four years old, and then he wouldn't stop asking questions. The local school mom didn't want to teach him because he was annoying her with all these questions, kicked him out. And in 1854, they moved to Port Huron, Michigan, when he was seven years old. Again, his teacher there in their one-room schoolhouse famously looked at him with his big forehead and his big skull and said that she thought that his brain was addled, that is to say, scrambled. She thought that there was something the matter with him. There was something the matter. And there was something the matter. He was a genius. Right. He worked selling newspapers in Port Huron along the train tracks and, in fact, launched his own newspaper once he had access to the newspaper's office. Uh, he rescued a boy who was stuck on the tracks, pulled him to safety, saved his life. The boy's father wanted to repay young Tom, didn't have the money for it, but he did have a skill. He taught Tom Morse code. That allowed Tom to become a, Morse, a, a telegraph operator, which took him to different places during the Civil War. And that's, this is how he got interested in electricity and in transmitting and communication. Now, in 1868, he headed to Boston to work for Western Union, but he was still, he was working on inventions at night. But people were not taking him seriously in Boston, so he decided he needed to move out of Boston and to the city that respected commerce more than Boston, that would be New York City. So he borrowed $35 from a pal, which was a lot of money, and hopped on a steamship from Boston to New York. Of course, he was also broke and in debt. I mean. Who hasn't been there? <laughs> and 22 years old. Right. He didn't have a place to sleep. He wandered the streets his first nights. The friend he was supposed to be staying with wasn't home. And so he was kind of homeless. He was broke. After trying to fit in for three weeks, he was sleeping in the basement of an office building. Okay. Kind of crashing in the basement. And he was wandering through the building one day and he noticed that people were in a panic around a stock ticker machine that was broken. Something was off. Well, he'd been sleeping downstairs and he'd been nosing around at night when the office was closed. So he already knew about this machine and he already had sort of played around with it. So he nudged his way in and he fixed the machine on the spot. And he so impressed everybody there, including the manager, that he was hired on the spot at a salary of $300 a month, which was a lot of money to him. This at least gave him a stable salary and he continued developing things at night his life really took off shortly thereafter when he invented and sold a stock ticker machine. He sold it for $40,000. I mean, that's a good chunk of change right now. Can you imagine what $40,000 was in 1870? Right. And it was with that money that he opened up his first lab in Newark, New Jersey. We don't talk about the Newark laboratory, do we? Yeah, his very first lab. Two years later in 1876, just seven years after arriving in New York, he had 122 patents to his name. And he moved his laboratories to Menlo Park. This would really be the location where his, some of his greatest inventions would come out of here. Uh, Absolutely. In, in this area of uh, New Jersey. So that takes us to 1878. Right. So, so back at 1878, we're now back to the moment where Thomas Edison is making this proclamation. He's yeah, already invented okay. the phonograph. I think he got everybody's attention with the phonograph, which had been the previous year. Uh, some places in New York ha already have these sizzling arc lights. Right. So electricity is on everybody's mind, but he is going to one-up everybody. And says that he's going to invent this incandescent light bulb. Doesn't have it yet, but he's going to work on it in his fancy new laboratories out in Menlo Park. So they capitalize the company, the Edison Electric Company, $300,000. He gets to keep $50,000. 
And with that, he expanded his Menlo Park labs and he actually built a swanky library in which he'd sort of seduce his potential suitors and his investors. When the New York City aldermen would come out, they would sort of sit in the sort of nice mahogany chairs and, you know. Treat them right. Treat them right. He worked for the next 13 months on developing this incandescent light bulb. And finally, he discovered a kind of carbonized cotton filament that would allow the bulb to burn for 40 hours. So when we talk about Edison inventing the light bulb, we really can't call him the inventor. But Edison was the first person to produce and manufacture a light bulb that was commercially viable. So on December 31st of 1879, Edison had his first demonstration of his electric lights in Menlo Park. And just two days later in 1880, he did the same thing for the New York City aldermen. He brought them out. And they saw their first demonstration of all of these light bulbs, a string of them, 25-watt light bulbs, uh, lighting up a room. I'm just seeing all these Tammany men with their cigars, sitting around, being amazed by this, and and, and immediately seeing how they can profit from it. Well, as it turns out, they were unwilling to commit at that time because they didn't want to use city funds. Oh, But they loved it nonetheless, and Edison continued to work on this bigger project to light up all of New York. So he built a grid-like mock-up of Manhattan streets in Menlo Park with 400 lights. So imagine like... Wow, I didn't know that. So a little model. A little model Manhattan in Menlo Park, and again, put on a show for people he brought out to the city, including international theater star Sarah Bernhardt was there to frolic amongst... This model Manhattan. So even theatrical icons are coming out to to see this magical flame. Let's just say that two weeks later, he was given the go-ahead to lay his wire. Now, his plan was actually to lay his electric lines under the sidewalks, underground. So not above ground, not creating another eyesore, but to bury his wire. Well, there were already like lots of wires. Oh, yeah. Time because you had telegraph wires and Brush's own arc light wires were above ground. And they um, sometimes they were guarded because people were afraid that if you messed around with these wires, you would be electrocuted. Right. So and there were other wires for security companies and police department and fire departments. So What we're not painting effectively here is the correct picture of the skyline and of a sky that is just crisscrossed with wires in every direction. Well, smaller cities today and rural areas have power lines, telephone poles and things. But New York itself had them by this time also. Edison decided to bury his wires. And then Edison decided that he needed to physically be in New York, get out of Menlo Park. And so he opened up his own command center in a brownstone near 14th Street and 5th Avenue. Of course, he had to light the whole place up with light bulbs. With with like a private generator, right? Yes, with his own. And that would become, I guess, the first building to have these incandescent light bulbs in New York City. And of course, it was also there to create buzz. I mean, there was at 5th and 14th Street, right in the middle of all the action. And so people were attracted to it to see what this new invention was, what this new technology was. Now, weren't some of these wealthy investors also kind of dazzled by this? Didn't they want it themselves? You you might be referring, of course, to J.P. Morgan Morgan, and the Vanderbilts. Yes. In fact, Morgan's new mansion on Madison Avenue was to be the first private house in New York City to make the switch to incandescent light bulbs. Morgan was also a major backer of his, so this was a good political move for Edison to wire Morgan. And so they set up the whole thing so that by the time that Morgan would move into his new mansion at 
219 Madison Avenue, the place would be wired and he'd be the first residence with incandescent lighting in New York City. Unfortunately for him, a James Hood Wright beat him to the punch, installing a system in his house in Fort Washington before Morgan actually moved into his mansion. Oh, so the title went to someone of far lesser title. Correct. And Morgan was pretty happy with his electric experience, although his neighbors were not really very pleased because he had to have his own the private generator. Right. A generator. Loud. Yes, it was, you know, there was a steam engine in the backyard that had to power this <laughs> generator. And a man, there was a, like a full-time engineer who had to run this thing, and he only worked until 11 o'clock at night. So at 11 o'clock, he would leave and turn out the lights. Well, <laughs> sometimes they'd forget to tell him, you know, that they were having a dinner party or they'd be in the middle of cards or a digestif. And all of a sudden, all the lights at the Morgan household would go out. Mrs. Morgan must have just loved this. <laughs> and we should also say that the Vanderbilts, all three of their uptown mansions were wired as well. Although William H. Vanderbilt would roll back and revert to gas. Because I believe his wife refused to live there, right? Because of the potential for fire. Edison finally got the permission to build an actual power grid of city blocks and to electrify New York finally. He would need to build a power plant in the middle of New York. He ended up settling on two much smaller buildings that were at 257 Pearl Street. This is near Skirmerhorn Row, by the way, today's South Street Seaport. Tourists walk by this particular address all the time without noticing and without realizing that it is one of the most important addresses in the history of American technology. Construction began at this location on Pearl Street. He would actually sleep in the basement. You know, he was such a hands-on, and he also had a very unorthodox sleeping schedule. Right. So he slept at the place. It would be very damp and chilly, and he would recall later that a, a couple of his workers even died of related illnesses that they would catch while they were working here. In a way, it almost calls to mind the construction of the Brooklyn Bridge caissons, which, by the way, is being built and has almost been completed very close by, just right. a few blocks away. So Edison's workers began this massive project of digging up the city. They would eventually bury 80,000 feet of wire here. The service area, so essentially what we're talking about here, what he's planning on lighting, if you can visualize a map here of Manhattan, the southern border would be Wall Street. The western border would be Nassau Street. The northern edge of this grid would be Spruce Street. So essentially where the Brooklyn Bridge began mm -hmm. and then over to the water's edge, Ferry Street. There were some fine residents here. Of course, there was Wall Street. And more importantly, there were a few newspapers who were also going to be lit up at this time. Okay. But it wasn't like the most ideal neighborhood of it wasn't like with the arc light where they were lighting up the trendiest neighborhood, if you will. This no, but the offices of the financiers who had backed the Edison Electric were Company here. were all in Oh, that's grip. right. Of course. So the barrel of these wires began in April of 1881, not without a few difficulties, as one could imagine. For instance, there was, I'm not sure where this was exactly, but there was a, a particular hot area, as they call it, where some electrical current would seep through the street. Horses, as they rode by, would get shocked. They would be galloping down the street, and then they would start shaking and getting disoriented. 
A police witness said, quote, certain equestrian antics such as had never been witnessed occurred on this particular spot. Some reporters looked into this and Edison and his people insisted that everything was totally fine, that this was just a little bit of a fluke. Some of the gas companies, of course, were getting a little nervous by this. And so they started leaking stories to the press, stories of a fear of toxic rays that would be emanating from electricity. And so burying that under the city, the entire city would be exposed to these very toxic rays. On top of the wires, Edison also had to install meters. He actually had men go door to door inspecting all the houses that would would get this electrical wiring figured out which ones were the best and the most suited for this. And he would design a meter in which he could measure the electricity that was being distributed per house. It took almost a year to get all this wiring down. They could only build at night. Of course, during the winter, they had to stop because the streets were frozen. They couldn't dig them up then. And they had to take it up again in the spring of 1882. Edison was out there, like, while he was working on this, he was also campaigning to the press, expounding on the positives of electricity and how electricity would erase the need for gas. Finally, we get to September 4th, 1882, and we're ready to turn the lights on. 3 p.m., Edison and a group of other investors, wealthy investors, of course, crowded into the office of J.P. Morgan at Wall and Broad Street. And from there... Flipped the switch and lights across this little grid all went on. And kind of to a collective, eh. <laughs> well, you said it was at 3 p.m.? It was 3 p.m. And then, but then as the sun went down and people really got, got exposed to the light, they realized that, well, it was a little softer light than gas lamps. Initially, people just didn't see the fuss with it. Like they didn't understand because a lot of the benefits wouldn't would be long term benefits right. here. Uh, and these were 25 watt bulbs. These were. Yeah, these were very, very dim. Like you couldn't really read under this light. Customers in this area received their first four months of electricity for free. The most enthusiastic customer in this particular area, I'm, I believe he's the most enthusiastic, was a man who sold whiskey by the barrel. He must have read something in a newspaper before he took each a lit light bulb. He had a string of light bulbs and he would put each lit light bulb in a barrel of whiskey. And he believed that it helped sort of like stir up the whiskey and make it taste a little better. Um, very slow going here. At Great taste, less filaments. <laughs> so it was slow going here. Only 231 customers the first year. But they made plans to expand uptown around Madison Square. That would take a few years, but would eventually be completed in 1888. The future boroughs would get electricity around this time. Brooklyn and the Bronx would receive it in 1887, Astoria, Queens in 1885. And this is a strange fact, Tom. The very first place in Staten Island to receive electricity was America's very first manufacturing plant for linoleum. Oh, the floor covering. The entire uh, little town here was called Linoleumville. In December 22nd of 1882, there was a unique application for electricity. One of Edison's inventors, a man named Edward Hibbert Johnson, put some of these electric lights on his Christmas tree at his house at 139 East 36th Street um, in Murray Hill. One reporter said, quote, it was brilliantly lighted with many colored globes about as large as an English walnut and was turning some six times a minute on a little pine box. So imagine a 
a twirling Christmas tree. Quote, there were 80 lights in all encased in these dainty glass eggs and about equally divided between red, white, and blue. Wow. So like this extraordinary and patriotic looking tree. Right. So, yes, there were so many reasons to be excited about electricity, and New Yorkers were. Now, most New Yorkers by this time had heard of another form of electricity as well called alternating current. So we should also clarify that, that the kind of electricity that Edison was working with here was called direct current, or DC, as we abbreviate it today. And this other form that was being developed was called alternating current. It was being developed in the U.S. in the 1850s through the 1880s. So before it was a rock band, it was two competing forms of electrical currents. The main promoter of AC in the United States was the inventor George Westinghouse, who was also Edison's nemesis and rival. Now, AC had some serious benefits going for it. It could be produced from power stations hundreds of miles away and then brought into the city, whereas DC, direct current, like Edison, had to be produced at a power station and could only go like a mile away. So it was not transportable. It was less powerful, but it was also safer. Some believed. Right. Some believed, and, and Edison certainly promoted that idea. But when you think about the grid that you were talking about that was lit in Manhattan, of course, there was a, a power station that was right there on Pearl Street. It had to be there. When Morgan added electricity to his home, the reason he needed to have the man running the generator in the backyard was because he couldn't tap into that same grid because he was over a mile away. And the man with the Christmas tree, in fact, had his own generator, too. You, it right. just, you couldn't deliver electricity to long distances at this time. And AC was promoting this idea that you could capture the energy from giant uh, sources like the Niagara Falls, for example. That electricity could be captured and it could be converted into energy and then it could be transported hundreds of miles. That is a much more exciting thought than electricity being produced in some double wide shack on Pearl Street and then only being able to be carted one mile away. The only problem for Edison, of course, the problem with AC, was that it didn't use his equipment. (laughs) Right. He didn't come up with it. If a city would, say, choose to use AC currents, they wouldn't have any need for the Edison Electric Company's generators or wires or any of it, you know? So he was left out of that entire cycle. So naturally, he decided to launch a full-scale PR offensive against AC power, calling it unsafe and doing all kinds of crazy things. So Westinghouse versus Edison here in the press and also with these two technologies. And we should mention that there was another Serbian-born inventor uh, named Nikola Tesla who came to town and also changed the story very much. He was born in 1856 in Serbia. Tesla studied engineering and then he went to Paris in 1882 and wound up in New York in 1884, where he got a job working for Edison. Edison saw that he was a brilliant engineer, and Edison told Tesla that if he could find a way to make the direct current motors and generators more efficient, he would give him $50,000. Well, so Tesla went to work, and he worked day and night, and he did find a way of making these motors and generators more efficient, and he presented it to Edison, who said, thanks a lot, but I'm not giving you $50,000. It turns out he was joking. He was joking. He was joking, and he claimed that Tesla didn't 
understand, quote, the American sense of humor. Well, this just sounds like late 19th century business practices, unfortunately. And Edison was very was ruthless also. Yeah. A lot of his inventors, as we learned in our Birth of the Movies podcast, a lot of his inventors got annoyed by him, left, and then worked for the competition. Yes, and then created rival products. To add insult to injury, Tesla, who was making $18 a week, asked for at least a raise from $18 to $25 a week. Edison refused. So he quit. And he went to work for Westinghouse. And Westinghouse was by this time based in Pittsburgh, I believe, right? But this rivalry between Westinghouse with Tesla's technology and Edison Electric Company, the AC versus the DC, this is popularly referred to as the War of the Currents. Edison was claiming in his PR push, you know, that AC was super dangerous and that it could be used to kill animals and, and people. And in fact, the Edison technicians got to work killing animals uh, very publicly for the press and filming it to show just how dangerous alternating current was. They were executing stray cats and dogs, but sometimes larger animals. And in 1902, um, long after the War of the Currents had been won by AC, Mm -hmm. sorry to jump to the punchline, (laughs) but the, the Edison men actually photographed the execution of a circus elephant, Topsy, out at Coney Island, Topsy had killed three men and was to be put down. And so they decided to kill Topsy by electricity. Now, this ties in to the fact that in 1887, the New York state legislature was looking for a more, quote, humane way of handling executions, which had been botched. They didn't want to hang people or shoot them. So they were looking at using electricity to kill people. And it was indeed Edison who was against capital punishment, but who saw a PR opportunity to develop a product using electricity to put people to death. So he developed this technique of pumping electricity into people in order to kill them. And on August 6th, 1890, William Kemmler was the first prisoner to be electrocuted anywhere. By 1896, by the way, Westinghouse-built AC generators were capturing the power and the electricity of the Niagara Falls and were powering industry in Buffalo, and the War of the Currents was over. AC had won. Right. I should say that AC became the dominant form of electricity. Now, let's focus on the positive effects of electricity here, because America, of course, and in particular, New York, fell in love with electric light, with the glow and the softness of electric light. Far from being an inconvenience in New York, neighborhoods soon became defined by electric light. Of course, the two greatest examples, that which we talk about frequently, Times Square in the early 20th century and Coney Island. Times Square, of course, with its electronic advertisements. Coney Island with its elaborate theme parks that would be lit up so that you could see them for miles. But probably electricity's greatest achievement in New York is probably the New York skyline itself. Because with the advent of the skyscraper boom, these ambitious designed buildings that would sprout up in the 1920s and 30s, you know, would give way to the lights themselves uh, Mm. when, uh, when nighttime came. And this would create, of course, the most romantic notions of New York City. Of course, the city would create massive plants that they would have to build throughout the city to to facilitate the need for this electricity. And they would work alongside gas, which would still be around. 
and steam to help power the city. Now, electricity has other purposes, not just lights by this time. In the 1890s, the electric streetcar was invented that would take horses off the street so they would no longer be like, shocked and electrocuted. Right. In 1892, General Electric was formed, and it was a merging of a lot of electricity interests, including Edison's own, but it should be noted that Edison was pretty much left out of it. It used to be Edison General Electric, and then he was ingraciously removed. General Electric, or GE, brings great things to life. In producing electrical appliances, things for the home that could be run on electrical power. Cities began using this electrical infrastructure built for lights. They began using it to power everything. By the 1920s, some say that the greatest driver of electricity wasn't lighting, but this new invention called the radio. In 1919, General Electric created the Radio Corporation of America, shortened as RCA. And so this would open a whole new avenue for the use of electricity. In 1920, another little creative use, the very first three-color traffic light, red, yellow, and green, um, was introduced at Fifth Avenue and 42nd Street, and that's in 1920. There'd been wow. other kinds of traffic lights, so, I mean, it's a little bit of a, a false distinction, but this is the first... We could th- do an entire podcast on that. On the first traffic light, of course. For New York Power locally, electricity and gas interests combined to create the New York Edison Company. And by 1936, this company, the New York Edison Company, and the gas company called Consolidated Gas, you see where I'm going here, mm-hmm. would merge to become Consolidated Edison, or Con Ed. Now, let me go back very briefly to these three major figures of New York electricity that you've mentioned. Um, Westinghouse died in 1914 in his apartment up at Central Park West. So he lived in New so York. he moved here. Yes. Now, Thomas Edison, we, you know, we mentioned he never gave up on D.C., although he focused on other new inventions at his new laboratory in West Orange. He developed the storage battery, moving pictures, which we've talked about. Um, he in, even invented a prototype of the electronic car, which never really took off, unfortunately. Edison became a symbol, an icon, not only for his own inventions, but for the whole idea of American ingenuity. He had 1,093 patents total in his life. He died in his mansion home in West Orange in 1931. But nothing, Tom, is more strange than the fate of our third wizard of electricity here, Nikola Tesla. He became increasingly strange and increasingly eccentric. He moved back to New York. He actually kept fine company. He was good friends with Mark Twain, Stanford White. He lived for decades in a series of New York hotels. He never had his own home. He always lived in hotel rooms, um, including the Waldorf Astoria. He also lived at the St. Regis, where, in fact, he was actually evicted because he couldn't pay his bills. In the 1920s and 30s, he didn't have a lot of money by this time. He would be seen feeding the pigeons around the steps at St. Patrick's Cathedral. Although he was also a germaphobe, I don't know how this Hmm. connects, but he was obsessed with pigeons. Like his entire universe would be surrounded by the care and love of pigeons. They became his only companions. He had this one particular white pigeon that he kept and he said, quote, I loved her as a man loved a woman and she loved me. When she died, something went out of my life. 
So um, he moved to the Hotel New Yorker and moved into suite 3327. He would still give interviews, but he would really be a little bit untethered by this time. He claimed to one interviewee that he had invented a death ray, some kind of a destructive beam that could be could bring down planes from as far as 250 miles away. In 1937, he got hit by a cab. Um, he lived through this encounter, though several years later, in his suite, he died on January 7th of 1943. What is perhaps bitterly ironic is that he died while living at the New Yorker Hotel, which was still at that point powered by direct rides. That's so, that's so strange. Life's little ironies. Interestingly, he had trunks and trunks of paper and research that were, was in the basement of the Hotel New Yorker that was seized by the FBI and declared top secret by J. Edgar Hoover because he had claimed this death ray. So, so he must, that's what was in Hoover's secret file? That one of J. Edgar Hoover's secret files was about Tesla. I Probably several of those files, I imagine. Now, today, New York's power grid is energized by 80,000 miles of underground cable, 11,000 megawatts on really big days, which they tell me is a really powerful megawattage, (laughs) which is more than many countries produce in a day. Um, We're connected to this vast grid that connects with all of the Northeast called the Eastern Interconnection, linking New York with New England and even Eastern Canada. That electricity is then, it's sent down to New York and then distributed via these generation plants, which are situated throughout the city. Please check out the blog, BoweryBoysPodcast.com, for some photos and even a couple short little films, because, of course, a couple of these things Edison himself filmed with his own cameras that he invented. Also join us on Facebook and on Twitter. All thanks to electricity, Greg. Exactly. So... We would like to wish you all a, a happy holidays. Uh, and of course, if you're listening to this after the holidays, we wish you a great holiday season the next time one happens. Either way, may your lights shine brightly. So have a great New York week, whether you live here or not. See you real soon. Is America's primary system working? Is the Electoral College still the best process for electing a president? Could a third-party candidate ever be successful? In a new season of You Might Be Right, former Tennessee governors Bill Haslam and Phil Bredesen gather the country's top experts to explore these issues and more as we approach the 2024 presidential election. Listen to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee, available now wherever you get your podcasts.